This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. For 14 years now, Debbie Millman has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this podcast, Debbie Millman talks with Beth Comstock about her career at General Electric and how big companies can innovate. I think the worst thing you can do in this time of rapid change is just say, well, I'm never going to change. Here's Debbie. I'd like to thank two of the patrons that help make design matters possible. Wix.com puts the creative power of building dynamic websites back into the hands of designers. As anyone who has spent time in a WYSIWYG platform knows, what you see isn't necessarily always what you get. On the flip side, for some, it's far too easy to get lost in code and lose the forest for the trees. Wix.com allows you to find your own personal sweet spot and take control of your site with their drag-and-drop editor, hundreds of advanced design features such as retina-ready image galleries, custom font sets, HD video and parallax scrolling effects, and even serverless, hassle-free coding for robust websites and applications. With Wix.com, you have total control of your web design like never before. So join Wix's brilliant community of designers, artists, and creatives at large around the world for free and ask yourself, what will you create today? Is your team designing an app from scratch? Rethinking the look and feel of your brand? Maybe taking on something massive like transforming your brand's entire customer journey? Well, don't do it the old way passing numberless one-off comps through endless emails. Instead, do it all in one place. Do it in Adobe XD. Now, for free, with the new starter plan. Adobe XD combines the ability to both design, prototype, and share in a single solution. Its combination of creativity and productivity lets your teams eliminate bottlenecks and simplify workflows. They can now create an interactive prototype and then share it with teammates and reviewers in a single place. It keeps up with today's creative demands by letting your team work when and where they want across Windows, iOS, the web, and more. Adobe XD has helped big brands change the way they create and review prototypes at a large scale. So don't do it the old way. Use Adobe XD, the design platform for the future, available today for free. For more information, visit xd.adobe.com today. Beth Comstock has an unusual resume. Most of her career, almost three decades of it, has taken place within the same company, General Electric. It's not that she hasn't moved around. She started in public relations at NBC, then worked her way up to become chief marketing officer, and finally, GE's first female vice chairman. But in 2017, she made perhaps her biggest move so far. She left the company to pursue her own projects, one of which is her new book. It's called Imagine It Forward, and it's about summoning courage and creativity in the face of constant change. Beth is also a director at Nike and former board president of the Cooper Hewitt National Design Museum. She joins me today to talk about her new book 
and her extraordinary career. Beth, welcome to Design Matters. Thanks, Debbie. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you. Beth, I understand when your daughter Katie was in the fifth grade, she invented something called the Aristotle, which she dubbed the world's smartest hairbrush. Aristotle. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Well, as the momager of that equation, I pretty quickly took over Katie's invention and thought it was also mine. And she was in a school science fair and had this amazing idea to come up with a a hairbrush that cleans itself. It was a really simple concept, like netting on top of a hair with Velcro that didn't stick to your hair, and poof, you released it and the hair fell out. It was so good. She went from Montclair, New Jersey, you know, science fair, all the way to like the regionals in New Jersey. And I was micromanaging her all the way. And did you get a patent? Is that true? Well, we actually talked about it. We uh, we kind of in the end lost our nerve because it ended up being far more bureaucracy. And she then went on to something else. Her next invention was a toothbrush that um, had toothpaste already built in. She didn't advance quite as far, but um, well, we were on to the now next ex- thing. That's now in existence. It's a real thing. I know. I think it was because she was baking the toothpaste in our oven and like the Noxus, Noxus fumes were like, we had to move out of the house virtually. She was <laughs> on to the next thing. But uh, I love that example. I'm glad you picked it out because it was I mean, one, like I said, I micromanaged her, so um, she probably doesn't have the same warm and fuzzy feeling about it that I do, but um, I just love that as an example of having imagination in your life, whether you're a kid or a mom. It's incredible. You grew up in a tiny town of Winchester, Virginia. Your dad was a dentist and your mom was a school teacher, and I understand you were quite shy, not entirely like your dad, who you've described as reserved, quiet, and creative. But your mother was the opposite of you both. You've described her as the unofficial mayor of Winchester because of how wildly outgoing she was. Was it hard to be a shy kid and grow up under someone so involved with the community and out there on the scene? Well, my mother dragged me everywhere with her. So the good news is, as a shy person, I didn't have to talk that much because my mother loves to talk, and she's never met someone she doesn't just love. So when you're tagging along with my mom, you don't have to do a lot of the work. We uh, we still today have this family joke. When we want to find out, like, the juicy stuff about someone, we send my mother. She always gets the story. If she's one of those people you sit to next to a plane, before you know it, you've told her your whole life story, and she's giving you advice. So it had its benefits, and it took the pressure off of me. You've written that as a result of your shyness, your mother pushed you to be a joiner. How did she do that? Well, she would say things like, you know, why aren't you in that club? Or what about those girls over there? You know, they're in dance class. Why don't you think about doing that? Or, hey, I heard because she was a school teacher and she had her network of all the other teachers, she usually knew what we were doing before we even thought about it. And so she knew what my friends were doing because she was in that teacher network. So she would often have these creative ideas that maybe I wouldn't have expressed to her. And she'd go, hey, so-and-so's doing that. Why don't you think about that? And I think she appreciated, she, she, you know, being more like my father, she knew what my father was like. And I think she just appreciated that without that nudge, I wouldn't have moved forward. So, you know, usually she did it with good cheer. Sometimes it was a bit heavy-handed because she just thought I needed to be out there. But I'm glad she did. And in the small town where I grew up, I mean, you kind of knew what everybody was doing anyway. So it was it was helpful to have an advocate at that point. You 
still consider yourself a natural introvert, though. Is that correct? I do. I do. I mean, I had to work hard to overcome the parts of it that had held me back in business. But I always found Susan Cain's book, Quiet, was such a re- helpful relief when that when she published that several years ago. What I learned about that that I identified in myself is there's the shy, reserved quiet. I mean, I think it's quiet for a reason, but that it's really about conserving energy and that introverts more draw their energy in. And extroverts, you know, more need to get energy by kind of giving things away. And so for myself, I still feel like I've had a very busy day. I'm so happy. I'm energized talking to you, but it will have been a full day where I've been going. And so tonight I'll probably curl up into a little ball and um, need to sort of reserve that energy. So to me, that's the most the best way I've thought of thinking about it is you just constantly need to recharge your batteries. When you were growing up in Winchester, Virginia, what did you imagine you were going to do when you grew up? It's funny you ask that. I recently was clearing out some old folders of mine, and I found a report I did when I was 14. And it had the very provocative title of Everything You've Always Wanted to Know About Beth Comstock, asterisk, but were afraid to ask. And it was all done in this beautiful 14-year-old, every 14-year-old girl handwriting of, like, the eyes were open circles, the Ys were curly cues. Well, I can tell you there wasn't much riveting to find out about me at 14, but I did find this amazing thing where it said, I am ambitious and I want to be about 50 different things. And I have to say it was so comforting for me to hear that. But then I went on to describe some of the things I wanted to be. I can't believe I wrote I wanted to be a lawyer. I I, Honestly, that must have been one day. I, I can never recall wanting to be a lawyer. I wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to be a psychologist. I wanted to be a teacher. I wanted to be a mountain climber. I think I wanted to be some kind of fashion model. I mean, gosh, knows what it was. But you could tell every day as a 14-year-old, I had some new encounter. Maybe I watched a TV show. I'm, I don't know. I wanted to be an uh, island castaway because I used to remember watching Gilligan's Island rerun. So who knows? But at 14, um, I wanted to be so many different things. And I think that's carried, as I look back, it's carried me through my life, just varied interests. I think when the paperback version of your book comes out, you must put that in your epilogue. (laughs) Yeah. I guess, one, you realize there's parts of you that were always there, and you forget. You know, you think 14 is kind of like a blob or something. I don't know. In my memory, I think what was 14. But that that part, like, I'm ambitious. I love that I I thought that that at 14. And frankly, up until that point reading it, I was like, what? Who is this girl? But that I had that at 14, I'm really proud of that. You studied and got your degree in biology at the College of William and Mary. Why why biology? I guess at that point you did want to be a doctor. I thought I was going to go to medical school. My minor, what I really loved was anthropology. If I could go back in time, that's what I would have studied was anthropology. And so I, you know, I, I thought I was going to go to medical school. As I was ending my college time, I really wanted to be a storyteller. I wanted to be a science journalist. I decided... Yeah, maybe medical school after chemistry and physics. Maybe medical school isn't quite what I want. And I wanted to tell stories about science, and I wanted to be a health reporter. But I, the first thing I did was I went out and got an internship at the local um, public radio station in Norfolk, Virginia, which was the big city near then. And I spent a year just telling stories. Um, I would go interview my biology professor and talk about 
um, mitosis or something really boring. And next thing you know, I ended up um, going to my hometown and interviewing um, the migrant apple pickers who had come. Our town was big. One of the farming there was apples. And so I remember I um, followed these Jamaican apple pickers around, and they had these lovely songs. I've actually tried to find that video, that audio. I'd love to find it. I still remember the beautiful songs that they that they sang to kind of pass the time away. And so while science was my thing, it was really the storytelling bug that propelled me forward. In between your freshman and sophomore years of college, you worked in a Rubbermaid factory. You did your homework. Wow. (laughs) On the 4 p.m. to midnight shift. And on the first day, the workers took bets on whether you'd last until the end of your first shift. I did. But why why were they so pessimistic? Well... I am a weakling, and I looked just soft. I don't know. I looked like I was afraid of my own shadow. Um, My dad took me and picked me up for most of my time there, okay? So they could tell I was a bit sheltered. You know, they were like, okay, smarty pants, we're going to show you, and— and I was like, no, I'm going to show you. So it was it, it was actually helpful for me to know they were taking bets. And by the end of that experience, you actually were quite good friends with we, the very people that were betting against exactly. you. Exactly. It worked. It was, They trained me uh, a lot. And I remember um, it was so formative for me because I was a, I had just come off of my freshman year and I'd taken psychology. And I remember one of the women I was next to a lot in the line, I think seemed to remember we were making like plastic beer mugs or something. And she's like, okay, you go to college. Can we talk about psychology? And she was telling me about her boyfriend. And what did I think? I had no idea. I, what did I know? I mean, I was barely knew what, who Sigmund Freud was. But I just remember it was a great education in human behavior. And also just the sort of superpowers people thought I had after a year of college. So it was a bit of a confidence booster, too, that I was working with older people who suddenly thought I might have some wisdom to impart on them. Now, I understand that your official broadcasting career began due to a referral from one of your dad's dental patients, and they got you a gig shadowing a young, then unknown, Diane Sawyer. That was a big deal. So tell us all about that. Yeah, so my dad being the dentist, um, one of his patients, it was not unusual. Our town was about 70 miles west of Washington, D.C. At the time, it was way out in the boonies. Now it's a commuter town. But he had a patient who was a producer at CBS News. And my dad was like, you know, my daughter wants to get into broadcasting. I'm sure you had him in some, like, (laughs) deep molar hole. If you don't help her, I'm never fixing this tooth. I'm going to pull these teeth. And so this poor producer said, hey, I'm the producer for this woman, Diane Sawyer. Have your daughter come and shadow her at the State Department. And, oh, my gosh, I was At in, that time, At too? that time, she wasn't the Diane Sawyer she became. But at that, that time in, in our politics. At that time was amazing. And so um, I still remember, I mean, I hung on every word she said. I, I One, I've always, her. she was so gracious. And it's also made me appreciate whenever you have an opportunity to help a student, like, so few words mean a lot. Yes. I still remember that that evening my brother was going to graduate from high school. And I remember she said, okay, here's how I want you to think about your reporter. I want you to go tonight, and it's not your brother. It's somebody else who's graduating from high school. What did he do? How did he get there? Where's he going? And so she was giving me just these really simple tips of somebody who I had known my whole life, but trying to give me perspective, helping me think like a like a journalist. And I still remember it as if I was talking to her right now instead of you. 
After graduating college, you were working both as a waitress at a Mexican restaurant and in a horribly paying gig as an on-camera reporter for a news service covering the Virginia House of Delegates. Sounds riveting, doesn't it? Oh, it sounds fantastic. You then applied for a TV meteorologist job in Maryland, where I understand you horribly mispronounced the name of the town in the onset interview. So what was the name of the town that you mispronounced yeah. and how did you mispronounce it? Well, I, I will, it was Salisbury, Maryland. And I think I called it Salisbury or something with my Virginia accent. and Or I might have even called it Salisbury because the <laughs> I-S is somewhat silent. And keep in mind that this they had a green screen. And I had done college radio a little bit, but I and I had hired some people, you know, like paid them ten bucks to do a video of me in, in my college. But I had never stepped foot in a television studio, and I just walk in there like I knew what I was doing, and I looked the wrong way. I mean, I just it was a disaster. I think they couldn't get me out of there fast enough. And then I understand a TV news director yelled at you, yeah, and and that really set you back. He said that he would never hire you because you look too young? Yeah. So I was, at this point, I was working for this news service. It was kind of like pre-C-SPAN. Think of it as like C-SPAN for the Virginia House of Delegates. And I did everything in that job. I was camera person. I learned how to register a camera. I learned how to do grayscale. I mean, I it was such a great education. And I had this little on-camera role where I would interview some delegates and enough to have a reel. And so I decided that I was going to go work at Channel 12 in Richmond, and that was my destiny. And so I sent my meager little tape, and he never called me back. And so I was just like, I can't believe this. So I made it my calling to call this guy every day. Awesome. Every day, and he never took my call. His office, and I'd be like, okay, the more he doesn't take my call, the more I'm like, I'm surprised I didn't show up in person. But I just called him every day, and finally I think he had had it with me calling. He was like, look. Why do you think I would ever hire someone who looks like you? You look like you're 12. You can barely talk. I will never hire you. And um, I've since called him Mr. Rant because he just had this rant at me. And unlike Diane Sawyer, he was not helpful at all. He didn't say, go get some experience. Yet he taught me a lot in that. And it sort of brought out this one of those like moments you think back and you're like, you don't know me. I'm going to show the world I can do something here. So it actually brought out a bit of a resiliency in me. But you're, I understand at that point in your life, your confidence was shaken and your fear of striking out into the unknown held you back, which ultimately led you to say yes to getting married. You've subsequently described yourself in the following way. I was a woman who seemed to have it all at the time, a fancy new home near D.C., a seemingly happy marriage to a handsome man of means. At that point, you had a job at NBC in publicity and a beautiful baby daughter, by every normal measure of success, I'd made it. Underneath that success, however, I was filled with despair. Up to that moment, I lived my life more or less by someone else's narrative, a simple story with defined roles that led to a simple, happy ending. Every day, I was killing off my true self with compromises. First of all, thank you for sharing that kind of vulnerability for a woman of your stature and success to share that type of story, I think will be incredibly helpful for millions of people. I hope so. Thank you. How did you get out of the boundaries of this life that you constructed for yourself at that time? Well, because my confidence was rocked and I was like, okay, well, I guess I'm not going to be a reporter. I got married and, you know, I was in love and it seemed like the thing to do, yet I hadn't really stopped to say, well, what do you want to do? And 
next thing you know, you're like married and then you have a kid and my and God, what have I done? What, what yeah. I, I was in my, you know, mid-20s at that point. What, how did I get here? I used to have these fantasies of, well, I'm going to start over. I mean, but I was only 24. What do you mean I'm going to start over? In fairness to my then-husband, I never said I aspire to this and now I'm doing that. I just was like, this is what one does. But I learned to listen to my voice and that voice, my internal voice, and that voice was like, you know you wanted something else. You're not exactly sure what it was, but this isn't the path you wanted. So now you got to own your story. you got to write it. Um, and it was very hard. I mean, I, you know, I was choosing to move forward, separating my daughter and my then-husband in, in that sense. And, you know, I mean, I, there were a lot of sacrifices I was expecting everybody to make while I figured out my story. But I, I, I had to do it. I can't describe it other than just I had to. So there you were in your mid twenties yeah. with a baby daughter. You're working as an NBC publicity coordinator, and that was I had gotten my big job at that point. I mean, I wasn't reporting, but hey, I was at NBC finally. So that's all I knew of what I could go on for the future. So you chose life as a single mom while you were just starting out. Yeah. I mean, that is ridiculously courageous. Well, or stupid. I mean, honestly, I, I I had to make it work. I think that was the message for myself, and why I shared it is. I shared it because, one, it's not exactly the story you'd imagine in a business book, but I feel like it was a defining moment for me for so many reasons. Because since then, anytime you encounter tough, I've encountered tough times of change, I can go back and go, like, you did it that time before, remember? Yeah. You did it. And I had no choice but to figure out how to make it work. And I think that's the lesson. Sometimes when you're naive, as I was then, I hadn't really thought ahead of some of these, the negative consequences. I didn't know any different, and I had no choice but to make it work. You had a massive insight at that time, and it was this. Something better was a deliberate choice. How did you summon the courage to go for this something better? Did you ever worry that you might not be happier after making these changes? Was that a factor at all? I didn't think about it as being happy. I just felt like I had to do this. So I just did it. I, I you know, I mean, I summoned all my courage. I share in the book. I mean, I was too much of a coward to even tell my mother. I made my then-husband tell my mother, and I, like, sat there with my ear against the door listening. How did she Um, respond? She was shocked. I mean, she thought everything was great, and I seemingly was thriving in what I was doing. So I hadn't conveyed to people, even my then-husband, I don't think he got a sense of the despair I was feeling at, wait a minute, this isn't the path I had planned for myself. So I hadn't clued a lot of people in. You got a job as the publicity coordinator for NBC's Washington News Bureau and soon took over the department. So clearly, you were good at what you were doing. But then you got moved to New York. So you moved to New York City with your small daughter. And in the book, you say you've written that you got a Ph.D. in gatekeepers. <laughs> so what does that mean? Well, I uh, when I, I finally moved to New York, and I that was one of my aspirations. i just a small-town girl. I want to see the world. And New York seemed as big as it could get. And so my ambitions were big. Um, and I, I move up, and I have a boss who I um, have dubbed JR. And he was a very smart man, but he seemed to have all the answers. And I was part of a team and felt I couldn't do anything. Yeah, he was mean to you. He was just, he knew all the answers and he was tough to everybody. He just didn't engage us. He sat behind his closed door. Any idea someone would have, it'd be like, no, we're not going to do that. Or no, that's not, that's not going to work. And it was very discouraging. And so I realized that he was 
a gatekeeper in the sense that he was just not going to ever say yes. He held on to power. And I was frustrated. I summoned all my courage, and I went in once I did this whole report. Another thing I saved, you'll think I'm an archivist, but I'm really not. I think these are things I it's probably psychologically saved for these reasons. But I summoned all my courage, put in this kind of world-according-to-me report, and he was like, nah. And I was like, I can't work here if this is who I'm working for. And so I, the next opportunity that came along, I had an opportunity to go to Turner Broadcasting, and I took it. And I, a couple things came out of that. I realized it was early in my career, there will always be gatekeepers. Sometimes they're even in your own head. And so, you know, were there different ways I could have worked around him? Were there other places in my company I could have gone to work? All those things were true. At the time, it seemed like I was never going to go anywhere because he was in the way. So that was my lesson there. And, and there, in hindsight, there were more things I could have done to try to make that work. But... That gave you the opportunity to get a job leading PR at the then brand new news station called CNN, which aptly stood for Cable News Network. Um, I'm wondering if you can share with our listeners how shaking Ted Turner's wet hand after he emerged from the bathroom changed your life. Yeah, well, it was one of those, again, one of those small moments that mean a lot in your your mind. Um, Because I was reserved, I'd worked at Turner for a year, and Ted did not even know my name. He was all over the world, but when he came to New York, he got a lot of awards, and I was the PR person that handled them with him. And I would do a really good job, and then I would recede into the wallpaper. Literally, I remember one dress I had. I'm wearing a flowered top now, but I think it almost matched the wallpaper. I Mm. still remember it. I was standing at the UN, and it's like you could barely see I was there. I was like, how could I be? I've been working for this guy for a year, and he doesn't know my name. Oh, it's because I haven't introduced myself. So, okay, now I'm going to do it. I see him go in the men's room, and I'm like, okay, now's my moment. I go, he comes out, and I go, hi, Ted, I'm in, like, before I could even spit it out, he's like, oh, hi, and he kind of waited to see what I was going to say, and I didn't have much to say, and I look down, and he kind of walks away, and he zips his fly, because he wasn't even done, you know, (laughs) and his hand was uncomfortably wet, he never learned my name, I felt like a total, you know, but there was a little part of me of like, okay, you did it, Yeah. you, you know what, it was so awkward. It was so awkward. And I don't know if introvert comes with being awkward, but I could also attest to being awkward at those moments, overthinking. But there was a little of like, okay, you did it. You did it. And so that was a pivotal moment for me to say, you just got to, you could stand against the wall and literally look like wallpaper, or you could put yourself out there and be awkward. And he probably still never knew my name. What was it like being at the entryway of a whole new way of culture-consuming news? Yeah, it was amazing. I mean, I remember being there during the first Gulf War and walking down Times Square with uh, then, you know, um, Bernie Shaw and some of these people, Peter Arnett, who had been in the first Gulf War. And it was the huge revolution in media. It was 24-hour news, this idea that you could get news whenever you wanted from anywhere in the world. It changed the way we communicate. It changed the way how people learned about their world. And so it was revolutionary. And Ted Turner was very much a maverick. I think because he was from the South, people discounted him. He had a real Southern draw. And as somebody who grew up sort of in the South, you know, I I think people took him for granted. But he was incredibly smart. And so he got away with a lot of things. And he challenged the status quo. Uh, which was the New York media. And I had come from New York media. I mean, the little time I worked at NBC. But they they were looking to disrupt those folks, and they did. They did a good job of it. 
1993, you were the PR lead for CBS East Coast Entertainment when you were offered a job as vice president of NBC News Media Relations. Everyone at the time warned you against taking it because the network was doing really poorly at the time. But your gut told you it was the right decision and you took it. Talk about that gut feeling and and what makes it something that you feel like you can trust. Yeah, well, again, it was similar to that, you know, kind of deciding to lead forward uh, with a divorce. I can't say that it was not logical. It was just like, you need to do this. So just to set the stage, CBS was number one, you know, hired David Letterman, had all the hot shows. NBC was suffering, especially the news division. They had had an original fake news incident where they literally staged a story that they then had to retract, and basically most of the people got fired. So I was offered a chance to come back in when there was little to no team, certainly in the PR team with Andy Lack, who was uh, the new news president. And I can't describe why. It just seemed like I want to be part of something starting over again. Truth be told, I got a better title, but no more money. So there was not like they wooed me with uh, wealth and like, oh, my gosh, you know, we're going to you're going to come to this horrible job and we're going to pay you. I can't describe it except I wanted to be part of something that seemed like we had nowhere to go but up. And I, I was I was entranced with that idea. And people, literally the night before, I had people, when I announced, oh, you know, career suicide, this is stupid, no one's ever going to hire you again. The more people were like, no, you shouldn't do that, the more I was like, well, maybe I should. You've described that particular job as your entrepreneurial awakening. In what way? One, I had to help form a team. We had There, were, there was nobody on the team. It was one of the first jobs I had where I got to really kind of pick the people I worked with. Um, We could go for anything. We could come up with any idea, and if they would let us, go for it. It's not like we had gatekeepers. There were no gatekeepers saying, no, you can't do that. They were looking for any idea they could have. At the time, one of the big ideas, Steve Friedman, who was the Today producer, had pitched the window on the World Studio. Again, we now take it for granted and that was our coming out party. It was just, and we came up with such so many great ideas, and we did such a great job, but they let us do anything, as long as it was strategically sound and it was going to get some attention and build back the reputation. So I learned so much from that opportunity of just go for it. Did I intuit that? I don't think I was smart enough to intuit that, but I knew something different was happening, and that, I think, just called to me. In that role, you got to know General Electric CEO Jack Welsh. GE owned NBC at the time and Microsoft CEO Bill Gates. In 1998, you got called up to Jack Welch's office. His assistant hit a small white button, his door slid open, and he asked you to work for GE. What was that scene like? It, I, I sort of picture it as as very 2001, Stanley Kubrick's 2001 with Hal and White and all of that. I yeah, don't know if that's accurate. a lot of wood. I think okay. that's the difference. They were big on uh, a lot of paneling. Uh, paneling. Yeah. I thought my whole career was going to be in media. Uh, by this point, I had uh, I had gone out of news and worked for, for heading communications for all of NBC, and I liked it there. I thought that was my, my passion. And so I got this call up, and I took up to his office, Jack's office. He had an office in New York that was a floor above the NBC offices. And I go with my notepad because at least every six months there was a rumor that GE was going to sell NBC. So I was convinced he was going to say to me, get a press release ready. And he's like, I want you to come and work here. 
And so I was stunned. And I was one of the few people who actually thought it would be a good idea to leave media and go to GE. A lot of GE people wanted to go to NBC. It was fun. Much sexier. Sexy. I remember standing by the elevator after I had announced it, and this guy goes, one of my NBC colleagues, so you're really going to do it? You're going to go sell light bulbs? And I was like, yeah, I'm going to go sell light bulbs. And again, it was one of those things where GE hadn't, it was always a great company. I didn't know business that much, but I, small town girl, want to see the world in this global company and to be able to learn new industry. It was science related. So there were a lot of reasons to say I want to do this. What kind of job was he offering you? He was offering me um, head of publicity for GE. And he said, look, I'm going to be transitioning out. He had announced he was going to have a succession race. He hadn't even then identified who said in about three to four years, I'm going to be leaving. And I want someone from a PR perspective. And oh, by the way, I'll throw in advertising because you're coming out of NBC. So that was a hook to me of something creative. And um, it meant I had to uproot my family and move to Connecticut and into a world I knew very little about. In fact, if anything, I was bored about GE. We, I went to GE meetings and they just seemed so boring. But there was just something about him saying this will be fun and this big global platform that spoke to my ambitions. Is it true that Jack Welch carried a a brown briefcase given to him by his mother that he named Mr. Lucky? It's true. It's um, <laughs> this beaten up, ratty old thing. I don't. I haven't seen him in a while. I don't know if he even still carries it. It was. I don't know. I think his assistant had had to take it and get it tailored. You know, I, I, I imagine tape around it. Duct no, tape. It, somehow it, it's <laughs> almost like that. But it was so. And he he literally it was like his lucky bag. If he didn't have it in his sight or know where it was, he would get agitated. I took from that too just the superstitions that everybody brings to work and the things we think we need. Um, mm. To And I think it was just a, a lot of his emotion for his mother. Um, he was very, you know, he was very close to his mother. So I think there was this affection for his mother that was about that as much as anything. But you learn a lot from people by, by their magical thinking. What is the biggest thing you learned from Jack Welsh? His candor. He was incredibly candid. You always knew where you stood with him, and I will be forever grateful. I didn't always like it. I would say I rarely liked it, but I will be forever grateful to have seen that. He had this saying, it would be, you're either a pig or a prince. You were never a princess. And he would let you know. Um, If you didn't do well, he would call you up, or rarely he'd come to my office, rarely, but once he came to my office, he's like, you're a pig today. And he wasn't happy with the way I had handled something, but I knew okay, I know what I have to do. And once something worked out really well, we had done a piece, a 60 Minutes piece or something, and he was nervous about it, it worked out well. And he's like, you're a prince. I got a note. I think I even got like a little bonus because it had worked out. And like, I felt like I was really proud at that moment because he took the time to let you know where you stand. And it wasn't always so generous, to be honest. I mean, you know, it, it, it could cut you down. I mean, if you weren't ready to take it, and let's face it, we don't we all don't want feedback. We need to be in the right frame of mind. And usually when he would tell you you were a pig, you didn't want to hear it. And It's also really mean. Yeah, it was tough. Yeah. It was tough. He would say things like, um, 
that's got to be the second stupidest idea I've ever heard. And Did I, he ever tell you what the first one no, was? No, but it made me wonder, because but I was too afraid to say, well, like, what's the stupidest? But it made me kind of wonder, wonder what the first stupidest idea was. So you had something to aspire to. Yeah. So maybe in his mind, he was giving you some aspiration. But it was funny. You know, it was one of those, like, ha, ha, ha. Everybody laughed. But inside, you're, like, dying. You're, like... Yeah, but it was just an idea. So yeah. um, so I think there were good things about that in that the performance focus was needed. And I think I learned a lot from that. But I think there's a way to be candid without being blunt. Yeah. I'm- and to do it in a way. And he, he I, I shared another time where he called me up and had fun with me on something. I had been too abrupt. And he, he had told me this a couple of times. And he called me up on the phone and hung up on me to show me what I was like. He had a sense of humor. Like, that was caring, right? So he could be rough and tough, but he could also be quite human and empathetic. And I think that's the thing about leaders of organizations. We tend to think they're they're, you know, one type of person. And yet they have both strengths and weaknesses, and you have to accept that. Do you think that the role of leadership is changing? Do you think that in today's world that Jack would be allowed, with the words allowed, with the word allowed in quote marks, to speak in that way to people? I don't think so. I think think he was really great for that era and that that what he needed. Um, It was much more tops-down, command-control kind of uh, world. It was less the hyper-connectivity, the distributed nature of what we have. I mean, especially a company of 300,000. I don't think you can do it of 300,000 employees for sure, but I even wonder, should leaders be doing it if you have a team of three? I mean, really, your job of leadership, I believe, my experience has taught me that I think your job as a leader is to inspire with a vision for the future, to coach your team, to get there and to allow empower them the room to kind of make mistakes. Usually I think that's where good leadership comes out. And so the, that might have worked. And, it, you know, I'm somewhat conflicted because Wall Street seems to like that and we do get a certain kind of performance. But I think there's a middle ground and I think we need to be more accommodating there. You share these stories and, and your journey through GE in a remarkable new book, titled Imagine It Forward, Courage, Creativity, and the Power of Change. It's a business book, but it's also what makes this book so unique is that it's also a a memoir, a really, really vulnerable memoir. You are as hard on yourself as Jack was. You're extremely vulnerable in sharing what you believe your strengths and failures were, what your weaknesses were, what you wish you had done differently. Would you agree in that memoir-esque type of description? Yeah, and I, um, I is a different kind of business book. So if somebody's looking for just a simple checklist, there are books that do that on change. Mine's much more narrative. I wanted it to be personal and practical. So as I was putting it together, I did it for two reasons. One, I wanted to kind of chronicle this time in business and just being kind of a change innovator's journey, change-making innovator's journey. I wanted to chronicle that. But I also wanted to just be reflective and offer it as some learnings to people who are coming along. And I felt the only way I could do that would be to share my story. I had the opportunity to reflect and I needed to share it. It makes me very nervous to have it in the world. I, in many ways, because I'm putting it out there, I name names in a way not to be um, sensational or to say gotcha to people because I feel like I'm trying to show the good and the bad of the situation. And 
trying to be real about it. And I felt how, you know, some people, I don't call them their real name. I call them a nickname. But most people, especially if they were more senior people, I try to share that. So I was very deliberate in trying to share it. But that's what I was trying to do to just sort of say, like, one, you can do this if you're coming along in, in your managing career. First time manager, maybe like you're going to have doubts. You're going to get it wrong. You're going to do this. And how could I do it if I didn't share my own story? So that that's what I tried to do. Yeah, I found it incredibly insightful. And also, I was really grateful that you were showing some of the pitfalls of leadership in, in that I experienced some similar outbursts over the course of my career and thought, oh, I guess I wasn't the only one that, that did it that way. And I think um, I'm a woman who's who's had a business career, unexpected business career, and I've grown as a leader. It's not a book about women's leadership, but I am a woman who's led. I was trying to show what it's like to lead differently and I've been able to express myself as much creatively as I have to about difference and as, as a gender difference. And so I also wanted to be able to show what it's like to lead differently. And I think sometimes creative people have a harder time in established organizations than anything. So uh, in many ways, GE was a huge unleashing for my creative energy, so unexpected. And how could I share that except to show that and show real stories of that? In your book, you declare that we've been taught to believe that our capacity for imagination is reserved for artists and inventors. The science on this is clear, however. Imaginative thinking is a universal human talent, an evolutionary gift handed down to us that has made us who we are, the undisputed champions of adaptation. But with the rise of the Industrial Revolution and the corporation, we lost some of our ability to adapt. Beth, why have we relegated imagination to the realm of the artist? It really drives me crazy. I mean, I'm feeling a bit of a mission on this because we don't feel comfortable with it, because we think it's soft. To me, and I tried to be very deliberate in what I was talking about imagination, I tried to refine the definition for the sake of my book to be about creative problem solving, the ability to think ahead to a future, future scenarios, both good and bad, and then work your way out of those. And I worry we've just become very short-term focused. Um, most of business has grown up over the past 100 years plus with an industrial mechanistic blueprint. And we're going forth into the digital age with that kind of construct. And I think education is the same way. It is. And it, it's, we're expecting people to have the answers, not to sort of test and learn imagination is seen as soft. And I don't understand why. I don't, I, I know why, I understand why, but I think we need to take it more seriously in the sense that um, we're focused on productivity, efficiency, checklist, follow these five things um, and you'll get the answer. And yet we're right now in this time of unprecedented change, things, disruptive challenges every day that you're not going to have a checklist to figure it out. I um, recently was on a flight um, from San Francisco, and the pilot, one of those flights delayed, the pilot comes out, we're waiting in the, um, before we get on the plane, he goes, great news, our autopilot went out, but the FAA has allowed me to take you home because I am old enough, I've been around enough, I know how to fly a plane without autopilot, and I am so excited, I've been waiting for this day for a long time because I get to use my brain to fly you home. And to me, that was a metaphor of kind of what we're talking about in many of our companies. We've turned our people into these machines, running machines, and how do we think about unintended things? How do we come up with new ideas? 
And I worry we're not training people. So that's really what's at the heart of it. It's I hope to like encourage people to grab permission, use their imagination to think creatively for the future. You'd think that imagination would have a much better rap these days, especially after Yuval Noah Harari's Sapiens, yeah. where, yeah. I mean, the the big aha for me in reading that book was the notion of imagination being our defining difference with other mammals. Yeah. I mean, it's just an extraordinary thing to well, consider. Well, how do you make sense of it, given your 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 career and your, your look at education? I mean, why do you think it is? Because there's so much risk involved. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Because to imagine it forward means that you can't predict it. Right. You're imagining something that may or may not happen. No, I think that's well said. I mean, to me, risk is acting on imagination. Right. Right. And you don't have certainty. And how many times did I get a business leader saying, I'll do that if you guarantee me we get $100 million? (laughs) Yeah. Well, if I were that good, I'd be, you know, no, it doesn't work that way. (laughs) It doesn't work that way. But I do think where... So many people can benefit from reading this book is those that do have powerful imaginations but are afraid to mitigate that risk because there really is no other choice. There was I have some favorite quotes in the book. You have one that I love. You say, we are hardwired to flee ambiguity, chaos, and the unknown. Do you feel that there's any way we can encourage both artists and engineers to change that hardwiring in some way so that we aren't so likely to flee that ambiguity. It feels like the only way to be able to imagine it forward successfully is to be able to calibrate that fear. Yeah, well, I think you mentioned two great things. One is I think we have to accept there's a fear of that. People have a fear of the unknown. We need to change our dialogue and our, I mean, we need to ask questions differently. Um, you know, what's your hypothesis is, I think, a great question. You know, I don't have to know the answer. I really like figure it out kind of jobs where you just throw people in a situation. I remember working, hired one person to come in and sort of figure out the future of blockchain in our company. She didn't have a, barely had a job description. It was a year of just go figure it out. That was a test of her. It was a test of all of our colleagues. She found people. They came back together. They came up with a blueprint. We need to put people more in those situations where they're given the space. I mean, I have these fan- this fantasy. It's like would never happen for all the reasons we were talking about. But think about just corporate development and education. A company like G spends a lot on development. But if you really want to develop someone, what if you just like ship them out to, I don't know, just pick a city in the middle of the country, Akron. I, I like Akron. Uh, we're going to take a team like you got to find your way home. We're not going to get you plane tickets. Maybe we'll take your phone away. I don't know. Just leave you with a credit card or something. <laughs> find your way <laughs> sort back. Sort of like one of those f- right. corporate forest missions, right? Exactly. <laughs> but but we don't do enough of those kind yeah. of um, – I think some companies do that. It, it, you know, they do it maybe as a simulation for once. But I, I think we need to deliberately think about assigning people – some of these roles where they don't have to know the answer, where they the risks are smaller. I mean, maybe getting home from Akron is, you know, the risks are too big. But there are some ways I think we can assign people to roles where it's okay they don't have exactly the perfect answer. I think we're heading just the opposite way, though. For all of the talk about failure and the sort of failure porn that we see, yeah, it's, still, <laughs> it's still something that is seen as shameful. 
Do you see that here? I mean, I hear that from people who are exposed to students a lot, that you get a lot of students who come to school fearing failure. I don't think they fear failure as much as they fear not being successful. Oh, and, and yes, they're sort of the same things, but they're not pushing themselves enough to be able to fail mm. because they're afraid uh, of not, not being succeeding. success. But you also say, and this is my favorite quote in the book, if failure is not an option, then neither is success. Yeah, I like that quote too. Yeah, that's that's that. you've got to do a T-shirt. You've got to do a book, <laughs> something one. just on that. I'm going to give you a T-shirt with that. But I mean, if failure is not an option, then neither is success. And part of what I guess you recognized without even realizing it when you were 24 years old and decided to upend your whole life to pursue a different life was that if you don't put yourself on the path to potentially fail, you're never going to succeed. Yeah. And we are living in a really failure adverse culture where, I mean, the thing that scares me most about the students that I teach, both grads and undergrads, is how fearful they are about not making it by the time they're 30. Yeah. And you started a whole new career at that age, you know, in your early 30s. I didn't start my career, my official career in branding till I was 33. So I think that the notion of making it by the time you're 30 is so limiting and constricting in, in all the worst possible ways. Yeah. I mean, it just it gives you just like heart palpitations hearing you say yeah. that, right? It's just so constricting. And we throw around these fail fast, fail small. Yeah. Like it's really easy. Like everybody like, yeah, I'm just, you know, going to fail and I'm going to get funded. It doesn't work that way. No. It's really hard work. And I, I mean, I've been on this journey the past year. I left my company. I've had this book. I mean, I've silly things, but they, you know, I've like had five different websites. I've had to, you know, all these things that you, you beat yourself up for, but they're part of that journey. And um, I won't say it's joyful. There are moments of just absolute fear, like, what if I don't get this right? What if this doesn't happen? But I know I kind of need to go through that. And that's what I hear you saying. People aren't putting themselves in that position. It's like, it is like an athlete. You're like, you're getting, you're building certain kind of muscles that way. Yeah. I want to talk about a job that you turned down. Yeah. <laughs> really remarkable part of the book, your interactions with Steve Jobs. So while you were at NBC, uh, Steve Jobs tried hard to get you to work for Apple. He actually tried twice. You actually had to say no to Steve Jobs twice. First of all, what was it like being in a job interview with him? Well, he was still Steve Jobs, but he wasn't the, you know, icon of all time Steve Jobs. He was on his way up. You know, he's abrupt. <laughs> so it was flattering, right? I mean, in some sense, you know, I remember— He just called you up on your cell phone, right? Out, you know, and I had been in the process talking—at the time I was talking to the iTunes team, and it was Eddie Q in those, those days, too. iTunes had just started. So most of my conversation was with Eddie and his team. And I pick up the phone, my cell phone, and it's Steve Jobs saying, we'd really like to have you here. So that was incredibly flattering. Pulling out the big guns. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> but yet I said no. It just at that first one, the job didn't seem right. And then the second time, he's like, come out. Um, let's take a walk. Um, and You thought he was smaller than you'd imagine yeah, him to be, right? exactly. And he's like, I'd like you to come and work here. And I don't really, he, the job was very ambiguous, but he was very insistent. You know, it was like, it'll be great. In fact, I didn't write this in the book, but he was like, come on, I want you to go into this meeting with me. And we left after we had walked around, went to his conference room. I mean, we're talking like no more than an hour. And he, we go into this conference room with some of his team. And he's like, here's my friend Beth. She's going to come and work for us. And just Beth sit here for a while. And I was like, 
what he, he was pretty insistent that I was going to be working there. So he had made up his mind I was going to go. So it puts that extra pressure on you. And, you know, and then I'm like, oh, my gosh. And it just it wasn't the right thing for me. It was agonizing because I was at a time when I wasn't happy with my lot at NBC at the time. So it would have been so easy to say yes to him and no to NBC. My younger daughter was like, I don't want to move to California and, you know, threatening bad behavior or whatever. She defined as bad behavior. Um, So there were a lot of reasons to not pursue it, but it haunted me for a while. I I tried to share that in the book. It really haunted me just because of the history of it all. And um, did I not push myself enough to be challenged by somebody who had a reputation for challenging you to be better? Could I have been better if I did that? And what do you think your answer is? I think I could have. I think partly I was afraid. And I think that's something I've had to come to terms with as I've thought back. I think I was afraid of it. I was afraid, what if I'm not that good? I think there was a confidence thing. But I was also incredibly loyal. And there's good in that. I was incredibly loyal to my company. Um, and you didn't even use it as a bargaining chip. I didn't. Later I did. I went back to Jeff Immel and I was like, you know, hey, I just want you to know I turned down Steve Jobs. And I kind of said it like, don't take me for granted. But I think that was that loyalty thing, right? Like, I'm loyal. I want you to know I'm loyal. And I've thought a lot about loyalty. I mean, was I loyal enough to me? Um, that's a question I still think I'm grappling with a little bit. You me know? too. It's, I think about that a lot now. Right. And you, you get all in with the team and like it's... What is your obligation to others when you're a leader? Yeah, exactly. So I'm, I'm not sure I have a clean answer on that yet. I'm still a bit conflicted. After coming back to GE, uh, you left Jeff and, and NBC, went back to, to GE where you were named the first ever female vice chair at GE, which is extraordinary. You were instrumental in a number of huge innovations from 3D printing to a smart home hub to LED lighting. How have your instincts changed regarding what innovations to pursue? Yeah, well, I um, I, I mean, I've changed so much. It's such a good question. I think early on, I thought I had to singularly get behind an idea and just sheer will push the idea Wow, how naive is that? I mean, it really is a movement, a group effort. I mean, it's a lot of people that see themselves in that idea and want to make the change happen, and you're just catalyzing and and cheering them on. So I think that was a lot of early on learning. Um, I think it is a lot of making space to test and learn these things. And I think this is a big lesson for established companies. All this talk about, you know, let's move quarterly earnings. We need them every six months. It's probably a core part of the business that you need to operate with better precision. I'm not even sure I agree with that. But there's always got to be a space where you're testing new things. You have to do it. And you have to make room. You have to make the funding for it. And my biggest learning in that is that it takes different people there. And we discard them in established organizations. We think everybody dreams in scale. And there are great people within whatever organization you're in that like nothing more than seeding it and getting it launched. And they don't want to be the big operations people. And we discount them. And so getting the right person at the right stage of innovation is critical. And that's, my I'd say, one of my big learnings. You were really given quite a lot of pushback on a lot of the ideas that you came up with. Your your creation or co-creation of Hulu. Um, yeah, things... it definitely wasn't my creation. I was this, I was a catalyst, but that was Jason Kyler. Yeah, but but there are so many things. You even your sort of 
dragging GE and NBC, kicking and screaming into digital. Yeah. It's it's you look back at those I, as I was reading the book, I, I cannot believe how much challenge you were given for doing things that seem so obvious now. How did you know when to fight? Yeah, uh, such a good question. And I I actually liked the digital stuff at NBC as an example, because now it's 10 plus years later, and we can look back and go, oh, right, streaming video actually did work. Netflix has now taken over all (laughs) these stuff. You know, that actually did work. You had fights with people about this. That did work. Uh, I remember one of the fights being what we were, our team was like, well, what if the programming schedule goes away? Are you kidding? There'll always be a schedule. The idea of binge viewing, I mean, it wasn't like we called binge viewing, but you could see these disruptive forces. So you just have to keep fighting for that. And for me, it's because you see these things. It's not like you see the future. I, I don't believe that. But you see the pieces coming together, and that gives you a confidence. It it overcomes the shyness or the reluctance you have because they become real. And you're with other people who see that too. So it's not like, you know, you're seeing things. And you kind of build this momentum of the team comes together and says, like, we got to fight for this. Like, we can't not do this. I feel blessed that I was able to experience that. I also had some great champions. I mean, Jeff Immelt was an incredible champion at GE for making space for some of the new things. But change is really hard, and the complexity, and you need people who are making room for some of us who are kind of fighting for a new way and kind of saying, leave them alone. It's okay. I share an example. We were launching our clean energy effort. One of the biggest— oh, Yet another thing yeah. you were given a hard time about, clean energy. Yeah, but it, <laughs> but it wasn't so—I mean, it was obvious, but the, the fear is real. I don't, it's not like people are stupid. The fear is like, but we don't know how to make money at that, right. and we're making money here. So, yeah, it sounds good, but we don't know how to do that. So these are real issues. But I remember the fear was always, but we're going to get ahead of our customers. And that is a real fear. If you lose your customers because they're like, what are you doing? You have no business. And we, um, as we launched our clean effort, we had one customer that pulled their business for over $100 million worth of business. And Jeff never told us, that team that was working on it, because he knew it would have rocked our confidence. Wow. That's brave. it wasn't until several years later. And that's what good leaders do. They kind of absorb that. And they, you know, how easy would it have been to say, we've lost this big customer. This is the stupidest idea ever. And there were times when he did say that, too, when he'd be like, that's a dumb idea. You're not ready. So you have to have that trust and transparency, I think. And at the end of the day, I think it's championship. It's allowing, appreciating the kind of people you need and giving them space to do it. After what I think is three decades. It feels like 300 years sometimes. (laughs) At GE and, you know, from a PR coordinator all the way to vice chairman at the end of 2017, you decided to embark on a new path. What made you decide to do that? Well, it was um, made for me in many ways in the sense that there was a new leadership team in place. I knew I'd be leaving GE at some point. I mean, I'd been there a while. Jeff's tenure was running down, but it was a bit abrupt because there had just been a, a, a sort of more abrupt leadership change than people had planned for. And it still was not part of the plan. It still wasn't a story I was controlling. So I had to kind of get my head around that a little bit. Uh, I threw myself into the book, which was I was already working on. Um, but here I was, this person who's all about change. I'm a change maker. But it wasn't change my way. And I had to get my head around that. There are two more things I want to talk to you about. And the first is about the speed of change. Yeah. 
you, you talk about that and say at the end of the book, the pace of change is never going to be slower than it is today. Do you have any insight or advice about how to adapt to this constant evolution of our abilities? Well, I think at the end of the day, you have to know what you're good at. Um, and, you know, you have, to, you, you have to really start with your strengths. Don't try to be something you're not. That doesn't mean you, you can't change. You have to change. But I, I think that's like use your strengths to navigate the change. Um, I think you have to constantly also at the same time put yourself out there and understand early what's happening. Um, you shouldn't be surprised by, yeah, there are always going to be surprises, but there's certain things, clean energy. Every industry you're in, you know these things are coming. I mean, imagine if you made plastic straws right now. Right. Hopefully you're not surprised that everybody's banning plastic straws. What are you going to do about it? Do you have a, sort of a practice of scenario planning or creative problem solving? Are you giving yourself those kind of exercises, these, you know, what if kind of things? I think we need to do that more in our everyday life. You have to get out there and see where things are weird. They challenge your point of view. You have to go see for yourself. Um, those would be the kind of things I think we need to do to be more adaptable. And decide, is that a change I want to make because it plays to my strength? Sometimes you don't have a luxury, and then you have to figure out how to get those strengths. But I think the worst thing you can do in this time of rapid change is just say, well, I'm never going to change because somebody will change it for you. Absolutely. So find your way to find a way to make the change work for you or to make what you do well work within the context of that change. Um, so, again, we're here at, at SVA. This is a school about design and creativity, and everybody's all about coding. Yet, I think the future is going to be the strengths of the people who are here, people like you. We're creating better experiences. We're, we've got to be creative problem solvers. It's about design thinking. So those are the strengths you're going to help make the future with. If everybody here decided they had to suddenly just be coders and give up on their strengths of creativity, we'd be in a bad place. That's what I mean. You have to figure out how do you use that to navigate the world that's coming ahead. The last thing I would like to talk with you about is astrology. <laughs> You're a Virgo, Virgo. And people might be surprised to learn that such a brilliant businesswoman named to Forbes' most powerful women list twice reads her horoscope every <laughs> such day. A silly thing. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love that. I do too, actually. Um, so, this is something you've been doing since you were a teenager. Why? I, because it's just one of those silly habits. And I think it's what we were saying earlier. It's back to Jack Welch and Mr. Lucky. There are certain superstitions. Rosebud. Right? That, that yeah. um, we incorporate. And um, they're fun. They challenge our creative thinking. I've been thinking about it like uh, mine for this month had a couple of days that were called out as like the wrong planetary things. And one of them is my book launch day. <gasps> and I was like, okay, so this is one of those moments. Like, did that put that bug in my head? And is it going to color my perception of that day? Or is it just a fun thing to think about how silly that is? And I have the, I'm going to sort of grab my permission and make this the day I want it to be. Absolutely. And I think that's what I love about, I think they're kind of fun, whimsy things, you know, just to sort of remind yourself, maybe there are forces out there to challenge your thinking, but at the end of the day, you have to make your own way. And to try to maybe make sense of things that we can't. Yeah, somehow. but I'm a classic Virgo. That being said, I am really pure Virgo. I am just incredibly 
perfectionist, organized, all the Virgo traits, that I get those really deeply. Beth, thank you so much for joining me on Design Matters Debbie, thank Matters you. Today. I, this is such a thrill for me. I've, I'm a big fan, and I've wanted to be here um, to talk to you. So oh, you do such a great you. job. Thanks for thank having you. me. The book and is, your homework is amazing. I'm so impressed. Thank you. The book is brilliant. Oh, thank it you is, for saying that. It is a real authentic engagement into your life and your career. Uh, The book is called Imagine It Forward, Courage, Creativity, and the Power of Change by Beth Comstock. Thank you for being here, Beth. Thank you, Debbie. Thanks for having me. This is the 14th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. For more information about Design Matters or to subscribe to our newsletter, go to debbiemillman.com. If you love this podcast, please consider contributing to our new Drip Kickstarter community. Members get early access to the podcast, transcripts of every interview, invitations to live interviews, Q&A sessions with guests, and a brand new annual magazine. You can learn more about this at d.rip slash debbie-millman. That's d.rip slash debbie-millman. If you want others to know about this podcast, please write a review in the iTunes store and link to the podcast on social media. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com and recorded live at the School of Visual Arts Masters in Branding program in New York City. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Wyland. Generous support for Design Matters Media is provided by Wix.com. 